a lot of what we consider to be received wisdom, this is the right way to learn math, or this comes after this, are actually just practices that are carried down. Some of them are tested. It's tens of thousands of practices that stitch together to be what we consider a course or a curriculum or a learning strategy. Each of those decisions is a decision that one can actually test and improve. Welcome to Ed Influencers, a podcast from ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. I'm Joseph South, ISTE's Chief Learning Officer, and I'm excited to bring you interviews with members of the EdTech community who are not just innovating in education, but who are influencing nonprofits, education policy and business, and are shaping how students learn. It's been one full year since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. How can we best take advantage of the lessons learned to rethink and redesign learning in ways that are more equitable and prepare students for their futures? What can educators and leaders do to build that foundation right now? In this fourth season of Ed Influencers, we will talk to experts who are helping shape this vision for the post-pandemic era of education. Kumar Garg is the Managing Director and Head of Partnerships at Schmidt Futures and previously led the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy under President Barack Obama, launching various initiatives to strengthen STEM career pathways. In this episode, he breaks down what learning engineering means and why this concept has never been as important as it is right now. Well, thank you for joining us today, Kumar. It's great to have you. So if you could just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about the mission of Smith Futures, uh, where you work. Yeah, so I'm a managing director and the head of partnerships at Schmidt Futures. So my background is as a policymaker. So I served in the Obama administration Office of Science and Tech Policy for just under eight years. Uh, I worked with you on the open access policy at Department of Ed. I think that was That's my right, the OER action. policy. Yep, yeah. our OER policy. And then I left on January 13th, uh, 2017. One of the things I started to do after I left was working, uh, working with Tom uh, Cleal, who is our uh, deputy, and Eric Schmidt on uh, this sort of ongoing conversation around what were areas where Eric wanted to make a contribution in his post-Google uh, days. So Eric Schmidt uh, was CEO of Google uh, and helped grow it from a very small startup to what Google is today. And so those conversations actually led to the creation of Schmidt Futures which launched in the fall of 2017. The real idea behind Schmidt Futures was how do we sort of advance science technology by betting early on people uh, who wanna make the world a better place. It started really small, less than 10 people, uh, a really broad vision and mandate. And you know, it's sort of grown at a startup pace uh, since then. So you know, we're over 80 people and the corp idea of like, how do we actually use science and tech for the public good remains the same. And I think what's been interesting for me over the past three plus years has been trying to think about what is the most constructive way to build out that mandate. And one of the interesting things that we can get into this has been thinking a lot about scientific and technological talent. People who are getting science and tech degrees, what are the careers they wanna have? And what are ways that we actually give them opportunities to use those talents towards our hardest problems? How does that play out? Like, what does it mean that you're betting on people and focusing on developing talent? I think there's many different ways to sort of approach how do you wanna uh, use science and technology? So one core idea is just that if you sort of look at innovation on a range of different sectors, 
most of U.S. both economic growth and innovation on key problems, you know, more than half of it is going to happen through its investment in science and technology. So obviously, we're living through that through COVID, which is the way we're actually going to get through this pandemic is through the development of these breakthrough vaccines. And that's actually a reflection of deep investment the United States has actually made on these core, te core technologies and our science and engineering base. The question is, is like, how do you actually apply these core investments in science and technology towards problems? There's both a supply question, right? So how do we invest in core R&D in a number of areas? And one thing that I'm really interested in is how do we take those investments in R&D towards education? So how do we right. invest in learning R&D? But I think a second piece of this is who are the actual people, right? Who are the people who are doing the bench research? Who are the folks who are getting computer science degrees? And what kind of careers do they want to have? Because often, you know, they're like sort of just treated as inputs in the story, but actually they have motivations and interests. And one thing that you find is that what people go on to do with their careers when they get these degrees is very shaped by the institutions that they're in. Part of, I think, the idea is what are the sets of things you need to do to actually support folks and be able to take their ideas and be able to actually build uh, new solutions on them. Very cool. So then it sounds like you're focused on helping people who might end up in an academic career move to a place that's more applied that will then impact issues that we're trying to solve with science and technology in our society. Yeah, and I'll, I'll give like, so we've also thought about what is the thing that you could do with undergraduate students? Lots of students are earning undergraduate degrees in computer science. One thing that we've sort of, when we interview them, is they actually have an interest in using those technical degrees in a range of issues on climate, on key social determinants of poverty, on education, on health. But then if you actually talk to them about what do they think are the available jobs, like what do you do after you get a computer science right. degree? What's the you know, pathway? They, yeah, they can name like a handful of companies. So one of the programs that we created at Shuma Futures is uh, what we call it the APM program, the Associate Product Manager program. Now these programs exist all over Silicon Valley, but they're predominantly training programs to become talent into those companies. And we said, well, couldn't you take that same model, but basically create an APM program for the social sector? So uh, work at Schmidt Futures, and instead of working at a company, at a sort of a core technological problem inside a company, you get to work with folks who are working on a really hard challenge in education. Right. But so we've had APMs who are working with various ed tech nonprofits on some core technical challenge. And that's actually the way that they're both scaling up uh, themselves, but also uh, contributing back into space. And the idea being that we thought, you know, this was an experiment. A lot of, and we're young enough as an organization that a lot of these are experiments. One of the things that we sort of realized in the interviewing process is education is this really large area of demand. A lot of students actually want to apply their skills to education. The thing that they will tell you is they can't actually name any companies, you know, or any ways to directly use their skills that uh, technically that's sort of in the education space. Now for folks who work in education, that might seem like crazy because it's like, oh, you can name all these tech companies, you're falling all along. But I would just sort of like think back to you're an undergrad, career discovery right. is skill ahead of you. Most of the things you're hearing when you're thinking about AI, computer science, the biggest companies, the use cases are different. And the thing I always tell people is if you go to an AI for good or CS for good conference, you can just like look at the speaking program 
And I will always look for an education one. And most of the time I, I won't find a single example on a speaking program or in the examples for the use of computer science towards education. And so most people actually think that it's actually only in the other direction, which is the way you can give back is to teach the next generation to code. The actual use of your technical skills to build technical products for education for education is actually like, and then when you say, oh, well, you know that Duolingo is actually an AI company. They actually are doing a lot of data science under the hood. You know, you'll sort of like, oh yeah. And so I think part of that is that how do we actually help students uh, who are getting these technical degrees see ways they can contribute in this wider way. Right. This is exciting because it sounds like you're trying to help build a technologically adept talent pipeline that then realizes that there's opportunities in education and wants to come over to education and help, not just for sort of an internship, but you know, possibly for a career. Which leads me into this topic of learning engineering. I'm really interested in how, I know Schmidt Futures has been a big proponent of learning engineering. You're, you know, how do you define learning engineering? What is the impact or the proposed impact or the desired impact of learning engineering? We lovingly sort of stole this concept from Carnegie Mellon. And the idea behind it was, how do you bring kind of an engineering ethos to the way that you would actually deliver and improve learning? The core insight behind it was that we're not at the end of history when it comes to education. That's not that like we actually know exactly the right way to teach everything. We just need to deliver it to people when they need it uh, in this format. A lot of what we consider to be received wisdom, this is the right way to learn math, or this comes after this, are actually just practices that are carried down. Some of them are tested. It's tens of thousands of practices that stitch together to be what we consider a course or a curriculum or a learning strategy. Each of those decisions is a decision that one can actually test and improve. Similar to like, you know, in any engineering process where to make an airplane take off, you actually have a whole bunch of individual components. You have all the engineering to then bring those components together. And then you're like all the broader physics of like, why does the plane fly? And if you sort of break it learning down into some of its subcomponents and then start to say, you know, this is an engineered process, just like anything else. You start to realize that actually there are trillions of combinations of all these different components. Let's say you get a piece, you learn something in school that day. And the key question is, when should you learn it again? So one concept in learning science is this idea of space repetition. We transfer things from our near memory into our long-term memory through recall. I have to kind of apply something I've learned and I try to apply it and that actually helps me retain it more deeply. And the whole question is, is when should I repeat back the thing that I learned? Right, when should I review it? Yeah, when should, you, when should you review it? When should I, as a teacher, bring this back? Now, there's lots of options, right? You could assign the person that as homework that night. You could come back to it the next day. You could come back to it a week from now. You could come back to it two months from now and say, hey, that thing we learned two months ago, what is the right answer? You have to make this decision of when to come back constantly, right? Because you're constantly having to decide right. in your system, when do you come back? Now, you're trading off against both new things you have to learn. You're also trading off against like it being boring. Like I already know this, but this is actually uh, an algorithmic process, right? You have to actually weigh against these different things and apply them. And so what learning engineering seeks to say is that like, even if we know something to be broadly true, 
the idea of repeating something back is important. The actual application of it requires a, an immense amount of actual deliberate practice and testing. You know, our intuitions of how often we should come back may fail us. And actually coming up with an engineered process to test might be really valuable. So it, it seems like it might, it might vary a lot by subject matter and how difficult the concept is and what concepts they've already learned that they're connecting it to. I mean, I guess my question is, would the end result of learning engineering be that you would derive general principles about this or that you know that when you teach this thing about fractions after that thing about fractions, you need to revisit it in two days. And when you teach this other thing about fractions, you need to revisit it in three days. Like how granular do you intend to get? If we sort of level out for a second, I think the way to think about this is in education, there's a number of variables that are always intersecting with each other, right? The prior learning of the student, any other aspects around the student motivation, the teacher, the content, you know, all these different aspects. And even as we always are saying, education is really complicated, all these different things are intersecting. We are trying at any given moment to reduce it down to saying, does X thing work? Does this piece of content work? The reason why I think an engineering framework is useful is we have laws of physics around, we have certain broad principles around like what causes an airplane to fly. Those are actually very important in the construction of an airplane. But at the same time, there's a huge amount of uh, constant iteration you're doing when you're flying the airplane uh, to actually stay within that actual zone. Right. So right? you're correcting for the which way the wind's blowing and whether there's an updraft, whether you're flying through a thunderstorm, right? All that's being corrected in real time. Right. And so you can both have large concepts that are broadly true while also be doing a huge amount of analysis to actually stay within the specific area. Part of why we're sort of approaching it from a learning engineering approach is that you actually have to change the way uh, a lot of learning science research should be approaching these questions. So most of the time, what we are doing to learning science researchers is we're forcing them in the way that we fund this research into basically designing the experiment, recruiting the subjects, building the survey instrument, and publishing their results all within the course of a study. And it's the, I sort of analogize it to like, if we made every astronomer build the telescope, you know, design the question, look into the stars, collect the data and write the answer. You know, there was a time when astronomy looked like that, but it, you know, progress was slow uh, where every astronomer built their own instruments. We kind of make learning science research do that. And because we do, most studies in learning science are pretty small. What that means is then, you know, you might do a space repetition study with 30 kids on right. a particular concept. And then it might say space repetition, sort of useful. But if I said to you like, well, how does this all stitch together? When should I use it? Should I teach this concept tomorrow or a week? They'll say, well, we don't really know because that would require a bunch of contextual information. And so part of, I think what the, the goal is, is to say, how do we actually build, take these big platforms that have lots of users who are learning all the time and actually make them into a, a live test bed. So you're actually testing this idea of when should you come back to this core concept in a hundred different points. And then saying, actually we found that for a subset of learners or with this prior condition, repetition at these key points seems to make a big difference. And that so doesn't give you one big answer, 
but it starts to sort of take this broad learning science concept and say, here's kind of where, you know, it seems to work for different sets of students. And then it becomes, you know, a principle that you can then start to apply as you build new learning products. We'll be back in a moment, but I wanted to quickly tell you about a new opportunity from ISTE. ISTE's Summer Learning Academy is a two-week online PD program that will help K-12 educators move from surviving to thriving with the intentional use of technology to meet the new realities of learning. Whether you're teaching in online, blended, or in-person settings, you'll advance the skills you've already built and return to the classroom this fall, ready to hit the ground running. The Summer Learning Academy is just $35, and you can earn CEUs and graduate-level credit. Register now at isti.org SLA21. Education leaders, you don't want to miss the Leadership Exchange at ISTE Live 21, June 26th through 30th. During this leader-focused event, you'll connect with education leaders worldwide to focus on the challenges unique to school system administrators and hear how districts are accelerating transformational practices post-pandemic. Add the Leadership Exchange to your ISTE Live 21 experience for just $150, but act fast because availability is limited. Register now at isti.org LX. All that um, measurement and instrumentation of the platform and of the classrooms, you obviously want that to happen in, with real teachers in real classrooms. Ideally, you wouldn't want every classroom to be instrumented every day forever. Or, or how do you think about it? Is your idea that we'll figure this out and then we'll share it with classrooms? Or are you thinking, no, we, we want every classroom every day to have access to this depth of data analysis so that the teacher can then, in their own context, use these powerful principles. So, so not just the broad principles that you'd learn if somebody else did it with students, but actual real-time data about my class. Like, which side are you going for? So I think what's interesting, actually, about the, the Carnegie Mellon work that I think is really interesting is that, in some ways, they identified four different users for what this, you know, what they sort of call this sort of continuous improvement loop, right? So you're both engineering the system, you're collecting information, you're learning about what might be inklings of what is working for what sets of students in what context, and then you're feeding back into the system. So on one level, you have the teacher and the learner. So you're giving them information about what's happening that's helping them incorporate that information into their own you know, pedagogical strategies. So like assessments does this where they'll say, the teacher will get a report going into the next day that says, these were the five questions that the students got wrong the most last night on their homework. And then this was the most common wrong answer. So you can actually then structure your next day around you know, the most common wrong answer rather than trying to cover all of the homework. But right, I think- that, Sorry, just the assistance is a company, right? Yeah, so assistance is a nonprofit that focuses on math homework. So right. I think one level is the teacher and the learner but I think the, the interesting thing is you can actually run these feedback loops at each level, right? So then you can also have a feedback loop that goes to the course designer. Bringing this concept back this often seems to overall improve the, for these set of students, their retention of the core concepts. So just in the course design, 
we think you know these sort of principles should be used. That doesn't mean it has to be on Tuesday at this time, but it generally you should be designing the loopback in this way. But then you can also go one level higher, which is the feedback loop to the learning science community itself. What are the ways that these sort of data flows can actually inform what we think are important concepts to continue to drive on our understandings of human learning? The powerful thing is where there's a number of different threads that intersect with learning. Sort of theories of cognition, there's sort of social emotional, right? The, the temperament of students. Then there's like a lot of work around just sort of the organizational aspects of learning. When does it happen in what context? And, you know, and then there's also these sort of broader trend lines like machine learning and others that might improve our ability to do some of this work, you know, and sort of do more prediction. You know, can I predict what the student knows? So I would want to, you know, I don't need to ask them each time. All these are different related fields. And the question is like, what might be interesting intersections between them? You want to have this sort of feedback loop there. So the learner, the teacher, the course designer, and the learning science researcher, it's not that like you, you say one matters more than the right. other, but that if you have a system where um, they all get to be both contributors and users in the system. Now, this might sound kind of fanciful, but part of, I think what we've been trying to do is we're starting to have some of the components of that machinery, which is these big digital learning platforms with hundreds of thousands, millions of users can become the modern day telescope, can become uh, where they actually can start to become the place where cutting edge research is occurring, but also the place that is developing tools for teachers, for the learner, and it's actually helping them build better products. Now, I think to get there, we have to think about these platforms as research infrastructure. And I think not everybody thinks of them that way. I think part of what I've been working on over the past year has been this question about, should we reconceptualize what we think about as research infrastructure away from the classroom into these larger formats where you can actually test and measure across a number of these domains? Right. What it sounds like is right now, we may think of a digital platform um, as a delivery system for a digital curriculum, or maybe a tracking system for tracking students' responses and allowing a teacher to have contributions to the gradebook, which then helps them accomplish their goal as a teacher. What we aren't doing as much is thinking about these platforms as a research environment where not only can you learn from all of the trends of how the teachers and the students interact with that platform, but you could actually run little experiments in the platform. And for this set of students, you could maybe try having a review cycle that happens twice as often. And while it doesn't change everything all at once for everyone, it could start to give you some insights that you could then take and apply more broadly. Do I have, do I have that right? Exactly. In some contexts, people think this is totally normal, right? So like take a company like Duolingo. They're running a dozen experiments daily where they're measuring for, does it improve your language retention? Because there, there's a presumption that like, we don't know everything about how to learn a language. And so we should be testing different ideas. And then if any of their ideas ends up being promising, they roll it into their core product. They're varying by learner type and all these different other aspects. I think that same thing could be true in any digital learning platform. 
where the platform is not just a delivery device, it's also an engine for us to develop new insights about learning itself and then to roll those back in. The reason I think this is powerful is that all the time we see individual experiments that like show some promise. And what we don't have is the system by which we can then actually go about and saying, well, who does this work for? So I remember there was a Carol Dweck paper, you know, eight years ago. And basically there was an enterprising, uh, I think research scientist at Khan Academy that read Carol's paper that showed. Uh, yeah, she's the person we often associate with growth mindset. Exactly. So they kind of read this academic paper and they're like, this is kind of interesting. So they ran an experiment on the Khan platform where they just sort of sent messages to people before they started a math exercise that's saying, you should know that your ability to continue to improve at math. And what they found was a, a meaningful improvement. I think a four, four or 5% improvement in the actual completion rate of the math problem. This got kind of written up with this kind of like excitement in the field, like, oh my God, like maybe this is a real part of the answer. But in my mind, like this was actually like a, a sign that we really don't have the right infrastructure because, you know, here was one person in one of the platforms reading an academic paper and being like, maybe I can run an experiment. But actually what we need to do on a whole range of behavioral science approaches is, run, is to run lots of them and then see which of those actually work out. There's a seminal paper that came out six months ago from a bunch of behavioral science researchers that showed that lots of these small experiments don't scale when you uh, operate on large numbers of students. So they were promising when you did them on you know, 200 students, they don't seem to be promising when you have 100,000 students. Well, that's like a real problem, right? Because it might give us some understanding of why we're constantly chasing silver bullets, where like there's some promising study, everyone gets excited, and then it doesn't scale. It's because we actually haven't built up the infrastructure to take small insights and try to run them. And validate of, them. Yeah, in a range of contexts. We right. always are like, let's just do this. And maybe right. this will work. So this brings up two issues in my mind. Um, one is about context, but the other is about experiments themselves. Um, I know there's a lot of sensitivity when it comes to our students. People don't want to think that their student is being offered something that might be subpar so that we can run an experiment on another approach that might be better for students. Like, how, how do you respond to people who are worried that we'll underserve a student population in order to run these experiments? You know, the learning science community, and the education research community, I think has thought about this question quite a bit. For example, one of the things that Carnegie Learning does in all of it, uh, the research experiments that they run is that, you know, whoever is getting, they don't think of it as a placebo and a control condition, but basically whoever's getting condition A versus condition B, they give them after the trial is done, they just switch it back. And so they, you know, the kid will get the other intervention as well. Right, so, so ultimately they get both. Ultimately they will get both. It doesn't make for a meaningful difference between the two. It just means that from a, from a design of a research question, you can then, you can see the difference. There's certainly ways that you can sort of mm -hmm. normalize that way. I think the other piece is that I, we should not treat the status quo as the right answer, which is we're living a national experiment right now, which is what happens when you send a large number of our kids home, but don't give them broadband. I don't know if like that's the natural condition that we should say like, <laughs> right. oh, that's the natural condition. And then the experiment is the, the thing right. that is inferior. I think the part of, I think the, the learning engineering ethos has the view, which is that 
all our systems are engineered. The conditions we create for learning is an engineered condition because we are creating school systems, teachers, products, you know, devices, everything else. And that all those decisions have a series of inevitability to it. We're like, of course, this is what it is. But actually those are not inevitable. Different design choices lead to different learning outcomes. Right. That if we actually take that seriously and start to actually test the different concepts, you start to see like surprising results uh, right. by actually bringing that approach. So, so you could argue then that one way to look at it is what we're doing right now is an experiment with no comparison group. Um, and so we, so we really don't know whether we're doing it the best or not um, because we aren't comparing what we're doing to anything else. I think that's right. I think the other dynamic, I think, I don't know if you have felt this being in this space is that I think we're constantly chasing good results. So I think because we don't do enough experimentation, when we come across something that seems promising, we are like, we sort of, it's like a bet the farm on that strategy. And I think this is, you know, it ends up uh, really exhausting the people in the system, teachers and administrators and parents, because there's always like the next thing. But I think it's, it's like, we're in the wrong cycle. We're in a cycle where it's like, we're gonna find out the right answer and then we're just gonna do it to everybody. And then we find out it doesn't actually work for everybody. And then we're back to square one. And what, what's our path, pathway out of that? Right, okay, so this is really interesting. So, so, one, so one thing that you could be proposing here is that if you look at the history of education reform, it's a sad story of small experiments run on too few numbers of people or, or too narrow of contexts that get funded and scaled up to giant contexts and fail to realize their potential there because nobody ever did that bridging analysis to make sure they work in all those contexts. And which brings up the second question I had, which is about context, right? You know, what would you say to people who say, the reason there's no silver bullet is not because we haven't analyzed it enough or not because we haven't tested it in enough environments. It's that every classroom is different. Every set of students is different. They come with different backgrounds and different needs. Teachers have different incentives. The classroom is just too complicated, too full of confounding variables that you'll ever get a signal out of the noise that is meaningful beyond just a few classrooms or maybe just that part of the country or that district. You know, how, do, how do you respond to people who just feel like there's too many local variables that, that are gonna confound any broader insight? It's possible that this is, a, this is an area where there is no one big answer. Uh, just like there is no one single drug that just expands your lifespan across all diseases. It could be that like what we are, the right way to think about this is that there might be certain aspects, you know, some challenges in education where these sort of scientifically based approaches could deal real insights, real value. And in other instances where uh, we just don't know. My view on the context piece is that, I mean, at least for me, it makes me think that we need these systems more because you can't say that you know every child is different. Uh, there's a huge amount of range of their prior knowledge, the the context in which their home life, you know what else they know, the teacher, the other students, 
everything else and then say, well, what we should do is we should run a study on 30 kids and then publish it and say, we, you know, that by itself creates a piece of knowledge that someone could then apply. I think most researchers say you can't apply, you can't take individual study and then just say, I will now apply it. So then the question is, is like, well, what am I supposed to do with it? I used to be in these uh, uh, conversations where, you know, I'd be work, working with members of Congress and their teams and they would say, you know, we just need like a place where all of the things that are getting funded on education are just like distilled so people know what to do. And I was like, I don't know if like that's the system we have. Each individual study is not telling you what to do because it is too small to tell you what to do. And so we have to come up with this, you know, middleware architecture where we actually operating at the size and scale that when we say what is working and for whom, we could actually make some claims. They could be wrong, they could be changing, but they're operating right. at that scale. But and right least, now we're like, we're in neither world. Right, so, so at least there's enough people involved, enough classrooms involved, enough teachers involved in a particular approach that you can start to make some generalization about whether this has broad impact or whether it's a one classroom effect. We just need to have more line of sight on what's actually happening. Mm -hmm. And I think we can't both live in a big country with so many very, you know, variety of contexts, but then think that our learning engine, the learning about learning can operate in the way that it's, it is right now. And, you know, if you, if we had had this conversation 20 years ago, I would say like, I don't really know how we can get there. But I think now that we're starting to have much more of this hybrid learning, I think COVID in this way is creating this, like we'll create one of its legacies will be a huge increase in hybrid and uh, blended and uh, online learning. To what extent does that also create the context for us to now have these larger environments for us to actually say what's working and for whom? So, so let me ask you this. Um, if I'm an educator in a school or a school leader, what's my point of entry into this field? One of the things that I'm really excited about is that if we can move into a culture of a much more rapid experimentation and continuous learning, we can start to uncouple the idea that researchers are the only people that do research. Right now, it's like the way you do research is you, you're at a research institution, you apply to the National Science Foundation or IES or others for a research grant because it costs a certain amount to design and run an experiment because you're starting from scratch. If you're sitting on a larger platform, they actually, you know, one of the things we're working with them is how do you actually have the capability to run experiments where a lot of the infrastructure of running the experiment is already figured out. And so you as a teacher could actually then propose an experiment. I think if we were to change this condition, would that have an impact on the outcome? And then the platforms could actually run that experiment with a subset of users and give you some information back. And so this idea of the educator researcher, I think is a lot more, it's not just like, oh, take time away from teaching and go get your PhD. You might get much better research questions this way, yes. right? Because the teacher is an expert in her classroom and she knows what seems to work and what doesn't. Um, and I mean, no offense to researchers, but a lot of them are just visitors to classrooms, right? They, they sort of land in the classroom to study it and then they leave. And, you know, on assessments, they've actually created a little version of this that I like, which is, you know, there's like sets of classrooms that are basically running experiments on assessments and becoming part of their informal researcher core. And so one experiment that I liked was one teacher came up with this idea 
of like, do you remember something better if you make the student write out the answer, even if they know the answer? And then what they found was that it actually does. And so now like assessments actually has that as like one of its insights, but it was actually generated by uh, as a research question from the teachers. So if I'm a teacher who's not using assessments, is there anything I can do to take baby steps this direction just in my normal classroom? Yeah, so we, you know, so some things that we did are just community building. So we now have a, a Google group, a learning engineering Google group that has lots of teachers on it that are both proposing ideas and kind of, you know, a number of ed tech platforms that other folks are on there. So that's, a, I think, one place. I think the other piece is, you know, actually, we have, uh, we've actually been supporting some work with folks who are researchers who are who like to run experiments. And I think what I want to do is just marry these conversations together. So it's not just teachers sharing their insights with, you know, some other teachers, you know, inside their same school or in the community, but that this actually starts to connect into how researchers, platform designers, course designers are actually proposing what questions they're interested in. So we're running short on time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I did want to just turn a little bit to the, the national scene. When you were um, in your leadership role in the White House in the Office of Science and Technology Policy, that office was large. I think it had, how many people did it employ at the time? About 140. Okay, and then when the Trump administration came in? I think they get, it was down to like 60 or 70. Okay. Uh, and then they also didn't fill the science advisor slot for the first two years. And then most recently, the Biden administration has not only filled that science advisor slot, but they've raised it to a cabinet level position. That's just a huge reversal at the federal level that seems to reflect their priority around science. Um, and I'm just curious, you know, given the time that you spent working for the White House, you know, would it change, how might a change like this impact education, right? And do you see any particular possible implications on education? Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that I'm really hoping for is that I think we take the idea of uh, research and R&D seriously across the social domains. So the United States, just through a mix of history and accident, ends up investing most of its R&D on defense, which is half of all our R&D funding, and then health, and then a little bit on space, and a little bit on energy. But I actually, when I take a step back, think, well, what are our wellsprings of, of human flourishing, right? It's like learning, it's uh, work, it's housing, it's food, it's transportation. We actually spend very little of our scientific and technological capacity, R&D dollars, on these things. The President Obama's PCAST estimated that our overall education R&D was less than two-tenths of 1%. One of the things I'm really hoping for is when we think about putting science back at its rightful center, we think about you know, science, as a, science and tech as a bullet in all our priorities. And I think this brings us back to our first part of the conversation around talent. I think a lot of technical talent is feeling the, what am I doing with my skills and how do I apply them towards things that matter? So I think if we really double down and give them opportunities to focus that, their science and tech skills towards these problems, I think we're going to get a lot of folks who will be teammates. Um, it's exciting to hear about the work that you're doing. I'm really glad that you're pushing this direction. And thank you so much for sharing with us some of what you're doing today. 
Awesome. Happy to be here. The Ed Influencers Podcast is brought to you by ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. Special thanks to Leslie Huff, Linda Abano, and Jisoo Song for supporting the podcast development and production. The Leadership Exchange at ISTE Live 21, June 26th through 30th, is where education leaders worldwide will gather to hear what's ahead for education and collaborate with other leaders to redesign learning. This leader-centric event provides hours of connection and relevant PD on themes like learning recovery, the opportunity gap, and hybrid and online learning environments. Add the Leadership Exchange to your ISTE Live 21 experience for just $150. Register now at isti.org slash LX.